Good morning, everyone. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, walking in with uh, Secretary General Bonn and uh, told him the last time we had so many cameras lined up like this, I think it was Bill Gates was here, and that was before he gave his money away. So, uh, so this, is, this just goes to show how important and, and uh, influential and frankly beloved Secretary General Bonn is. Uh, we're very honored to have him here. The first speech he gave as Secretary General was here at CSIS, and we're very privileged that he came back today to be with us to give a very important address. I would like to, at this point, turn to my boss, uh, uh, Dr. Zbigniew Brzezinski, who is a counselor and trustee here at CSIS and my constant mentor. Dr. B, I'll turn it to you. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a genuine honor for me, as well as a source of great pleasure, to be able to introduce to you a global statesman who personifies the hopes of humanity. He is, after all, the only public official that represents truly the whole world. It's a unique position, and it really is food for thought that it took so many centuries of conflict throughout the world for such a position to emerge, to become institutionalized, personalized, and so much increasingly successful. That is, to some extent, a very important measure of human progress. His life originated, commenced, at roughly the midpoint of the 20th century, perhaps the worst century in human history. To be more precise, he was born in 1944. And his subsequent life in Korea and then in various international positions, culminating, of course, with his appointment first as Foreign Minister of Korea and then his election as General Secretary of the UN, took place in a setting which was dominated in the first phase, so to speak, by the dilemmas and the necessities of economic recovery. Korea suffered in the course of World War II and then it suffered even more in the course of the war that started in the late 1940s and continued into the mid part almost of the 1950s. Economic recovery was the essential precondition for well-being and survival. And that was part of his growing up. He also lived through a period of life which followed thereafter, which involved the spread of democracy to many parts of the world, as well as self-determination throughout the world. He, in fact, witnessed the end of the imperial colonial era in human affairs. And now we're living in an age and in a century in which we are increasingly aware of the fact that the choice before us is increasingly that of self-destructive global turmoil. Perhaps not new world wars because of the destructiveness of weapons of mass destruction, but nonetheless global turmoil which runs the risk of poisoning the political atmosphere of mankind 
and more important, preventing the kind of global cooperation which is now so necessary for dealing with the novel problems of the 21st century, problems which indeed address the fundamental question of human survival, human ability to operate on this earth in a cooperative and congenial fashion. This is what motivates these days the effort at international institution building. And his speech today is going to be dedicated to an increasingly important facet of that undertaking, namely peace building. This is a new and important enterprise with which he is personally associated and to which he provides the inspiration and the needed direction. Following his remarks, he'll be able and willing to answer questions that you are prepared to pose to him. Please identify yourselves. Please do not make your question too long. But otherwise, the subject of the discussion is open, and it's partially your choice. So Mr. General Secretary, it's a pleasure for me to see you here. And please take the floor, and we're eager to hear you. Dr. Brzezinski, Dr. John Hamney, President of CSIS, Excellencies, distinguished participants, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great uh, honor for me to participate in this very important gathering with uh, so many distinguished friends uh, with whom I have been working very closely. And thank you for your support and for this opportunity. Dr. Brzezinski, it's always a pleasure for me to meet you. And you have been at or at least near the center of global affairs for so many decades. And it has been one of my source of inspiration and uh, honor uh, to get all good advices and counsels from you. And you have been such a good, strong partner and supporter of the United Nations. And I really count on your continuing uh, such a support. And I'm also very glad to see uh, Dr. John Hamley, who has been again a good friend and supporter of the United Nations. I'm very happy to see him in good health, and I'm looking forward to working very closely with this uh, CSIS. We have long been partners. We have shared information and ideas, and people too. Ladies and gentlemen, we are he here to talk about peace building. The topic uh, could not be more timely or important. Peace building and prevention uh, figure prominently in the action agenda I have set out as I began my second term as a Secretary General of the United Nations. And throughout the world, the United Nations is helping fragile countries uh, through delicate post-conflict uh, transitions. We are there at the crucial period immediately following the end of hostilities, helping to build institutions and address root causes, helping societies torn by war from sliding back into conflict. The main concept of peace building is that while the peacekeeping has been core responsibilities of the United Nations in 
keeping peace and stability. But when these countries are out of conflict, we should prevent these countries from sliding back to square one. This is, has been more important at this time. We have 16 United Nations peacekeeping operations around the world, keeping 120,000 soldiers. This is huge operations for any country except the United Nations, joking, uh, United States. Jokingly, I'm the second commander-in-chief, only next to uh, President Obama, <laughs> where we are keeping 120,000 soldiers. Only United States keep more 120,000 soldiers abroad. We have fielded another 15 political missions, what is known as special political missions, some with explicit peace-building uh, mandates. Our record of achievement in nurturing recovery from conflict is long. Of course, there have been setbacks. But the bottom line is clear. The United Nations is there where we are most needed. And just as clearly, our engagement has helped many societies make a new start. Peace building saves lives. It protects human rights and promotes the rule of law. It saves money with the cost that are just a fraction of peacekeeping operations, military operations, and of the economic damage caused by the conflict. So it is quite natural that peace building is taken on a greater profile uh, in the work of the United Nations for peace. And so it is good to be here today, today to mark six years since the establishment of a peace building commission, the peace building fund, and its support office. These institutions were created to provide sustained political support to post-conflict countries and to provide fast and catalytic funding to peace-building efforts. Last year, the fund allocated $100 million for activities in 14 countries. Our challenge is to sharpen the tool. That is what we are here to talk about today. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, let me begin our discussion by taking cue uh, from the headlines. 12 days ago, the former president of Liberia, Charles Taylor, was convicted of crimes against humanity for his role in the conflict in Sierra Leone. The verdict is yet another landmark in the advance of international criminal justice and our fight against impunity. This is the first conviction of a head of state for international crimes since the Nuremberg uh, trials. I'm certain as the age of accountability takes hold that it will not be the last. But the verdict also provides a window onto UN uh, peace building. Sierra Leone, where the crimes for which Charles Taylor was convicted, were committed, at one time hosted 
one of our largest United Nations peacekeeping operations, more than 17,000 uh, personnel and soldiers. With this robust mandate, that operation helped to stabilize the country. Uh, today, our peacekeepers are gone. In their place, we have a small political mission with about 100 uh, people. When violence between political parties erupted in Freetown in 2009, the mission leadership on the ground and the Peace Building Commission in New York worked in tandem uh, to forge an agreement. The Peace Building Fund, meanwhile, has supported steps to help young people and others participate in the country's political life. Such efforts recognize the explicitly, explicitly uh, political nature of uh, peace building. And they help to prevent a renewed escalation of political violence. I visited Sierra Leone uh, two years ago. A number of Sierra Leone's amputees, the most striking reminder of the war's uh, brutality. That was one of my most moving and saddened visit, to have seen so many young people whose arms or legs were amputated by, by just rebels and conflict parties. They organized a soccer game in honor of me. And I saw these people with the crutches with one leg, one arms, they were fighting, struggling to uh, play soccer games. But to my mind, they were better than World Cup soccer players. They were even charging uh, each other. I was uh, so moved. They were trying to overcome this uh, tragedy, their personal tragedy, with the help of UN peacebuilding activities. We just wanted to give them some sense of hope that they should not just despair by being amputated. But they thought that they would, could overcome even without their arms or legs. In Liberia, there has been a small mix of remarkable progress amid continued fragility and the similar interplay of peacekeeping and peace building. The country has restructured the army and police with the help of UNMIL, United Nations Mission in Liberia, the UN peacekeeping operations. When I visited Liberia in 2008, I saw the initial foot of collaboration between the United Nations, ECOWAS, this is the Economic Commission of West African States, the African Union and others including the United States. UNMIL, the mission in Liberia too, has been able to reduce the size of its force from some 15,000 to less than now 10,000 soldiers. But some of the conditions that led to 14 years of civil war still exist. And the fractures in society could be exploited again to incite violence. That is one of the reasons why the government of Liberia has asked to be placed on the agenda of the Peacebuilding Commission. And that country is one of the six countries on Peacebuilding Commission agenda. 
the peace building fund for its part is helping to finance the construction of five regional justice and security hubs so that these vital institutions can serve all the country's people. The fund was also instrumental in establishing the Land Commission, which is finding practical ways to solve, resolve uh, land disputes, a major trigger of conflict. We hope these initiatives can serve as a tangible symbol of our efforts to restore the country's institutions of state, to restore the country's institution of state and the concrete expression of hope for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, a violent conflict has declined significantly in the past two decades. This is a remarkable story, insufficiently told. Yet one and a half billion people still live in fragile or conflict-affected countries. For them, the world does not feel safer. For them, insecurity, injustice, inequality define their days. We see rebels, gangs, and organized crime syndicates undermining and overwhelming the institutions of state. We see violence driven by political exclusion, conflict over natural resources, a lack of jobs, grievances of corruption, and human rights abuses. Over the past 20 years, too many countries that we thought they had put an end to violent conflict, so it erupted again because of mismanagement of the situations by international community. Their political institutions were not yet effective to re resolve differences peacefully. These high rates of relapse led the international community to give fresh impetus to our work in post-conflict settings through the new peace-building bodies set up in 2006. Our goal is to focus not only on negative uh, peace, but absence of violence, but also on the foundations of long-term stability, uh, positive peace. We aim to give confidence to the people and political support of the long term, especially when the media and others shift their tensions to other crises. It has been the case that when the TV crews are there to cover the stories, international community did something. That when they moved to another hot places, then these places would have been just forgotten from our attention. Experience has brought many lessons. Let me tell you, the first, there is no fixed sequencing between or among peacekeeping, peace building, or preventive diplomacy. We need not wait for the end of military or peacekeeping operations to get peace building underway. Our peacekeeping missions are often important Early peace builders, as we saw in Sierra Leone, still we see in Liberia, and hope to see in South Sudan, where our peacekeeping mission probably 
has the most ambitious peace-building mandate ever adopted by the Security Council. Second, peace-building is a task for many actors, government, civil society, business, local communities, a long-term UN development presence, all have a role to play. This is also reflected in the diverse membership of the Peacebuilding Commission. Our challenge is to align them uh, behind the coherent uh, strategy. Third, national ownership and leadership are crucial. Peacebuilding success stories such as Timor-Leste have been associated with strong national leadership and genuine uh, social societal engagement. At times, however, limited local capacity is an obstacle. So is the tendency of some donors to support projects that might satisfy constituencies back home, but that do not reflect local priorities. There are some countries who earmark their support to their own domestic interest, which will not be helpful in local politics and local uh, stability. That we want that when you support this peace-building uh, commission, you should not that have that kind of a local interest, uh, your own uh, domestic interest. We have also seen some governments reluctant to focus on the key peace-building priorities of their people. Myanmar, from which I just returned, offers an example of transition in which stated program of change has been backed up by concrete reforms. The international business community is now eager to invest, and we are committed to ensure that the impact is positive for the country's peace-building efforts. A fourth lesson is that even certain staples of post-conflict activity can go wrong. Elections can be divisive sometimes. We have seen many such cases. Elections should work as a rallying point of national, national policies. But sometimes these elections have been used as a divisive or source of conflict. As we have seen many cases in developing, developing world. Even the building of a school or clinic can exacerbate tensions if communities are not properly engaged or local construction firms are excluded. Inclusiveness is essential. Uh, fifth, peace building needs to be incorporated more fully into development cooperation. Aid must go beyond traditional projects to support peace building and state building goals such as justice, security, jobs, social services, and credible political processes. This is a key element in the so-called New Deal, New Deal reached at last year's Busan Conference on Aid Effectiveness. The New Deal is being piloted in seven countries, all of which have UN peacekeeping or political missions. We must also consider whether and how to incorporate such goals into the development agenda after 2015, the target day 
for achieving the Millennium Development Goals. Especially af in the aftermath of Arab Spring, it is clear that issues such as political participation, human rights, and security are integral in satisfying the breadth of people's aspirations. Tunisia, for example, was making rapid progress towards the Millennium Development Goals, but was lagging on issues such as political voice. Sixth, it is crucial that resources can be provided quickly in response to fleeting windows of opportunity. Not long ago in Burundi, Africa, a holdout rebel movement expressed a willingness to join the peace process. The UN mission identified the opportunity. The peace building fund provided emergency funding and the UNDP, UN Development Program, and the mission supported the cantonment and disarmament of combatants. We have seen similarly quick and effective joint efforts with the security sector reform in Guinea, supporting reconciliation in Kyrgyzstan, and electoral support in Yemen. Resources means people too. Civilian capacities are crucially important. And we are taking steps to be able to deploy the right experts to the right place at the right time. Seventh, the, the inclusion of women in peace processes and post-conflict planning is uh, fundamental for their legitimacy and for the results uh, to take hold. Organized sexual violence is often a tactic of war. Yet just 17 of 585 post-1990 peace accords mention it, and less than 6% of post-conflict spending is budgeted especially to empower women or promote gender equality. I'm pressing to do more than double uh, such spending and to ensure that 40% of UN-sponsored post-conflict temporary employment opportunities are made available to women. We are also working to increase the percentage of women in UN police and achieving good momentum in that effort. By 2014, we, tr we are trying to have at least 20% of female police officers in our mission. Ladies and gentlemen, the United Nations is the only organization that can bring all the necessary elements of peace building to bear. Political, security, human rights, humanitarian, rule of law, and development. In our missions and country teams on the ground, in our planning at headquarters in New York, peace building has been a focus as never before. Yet clearly, the needs are great. The demands on the UN keep growing. Too many people live in fear and insecurity even at this moment. The work of peace is complex. This audience knows that as well as any. Peace building is a work in progress. We are learning by doing. It is rarely linear. It requires great flexibility and approaches tailored to a given situation. The violence within us and within our societies and among countries 
It's not going to vanish anytime soon. But we are firmly committed to countering it at every turn with every tool. We are determined to do everything we can to seize the post-conflict moment and help societies find a safer and more pros prosperous path. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much for uh, your attention, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts and comments to make this uh, peace-building process more sound and robust. It can be done only with your strong support. United Nations and Secretary General, myself, are strongly committed to work for peace and stability and development and protecting human rights, but no country, however powerful one country may be, however resourceful one country may be, like one easily may think the United States, most powerful, most resourceful, most influential country, but you cannot do it alone. All the member states of the United Nations, all the stakeholders, government, business, philanthropists, religious leaders, media, and students, NGOs, I think we should be all united in addressing all these global challenges to make this world better for all. And I thank you very much for your attention. Mr. Secretary General, thank you so much for your very comprehensive and important analysis of what is needed to enhance global peace. Before asking those who wish to uh, raise questions to identify themselves, let me just make two very brief points. Um, towards the end of your speech, you mentioned fundamental point number seven, and that pertains to the role of women. And I want to note that uh, we have here in our presence Mrs. Boone, the wife of the Secretary General, and she has been devoting her attention to various issues pertaining to women and to children, and particularly she's been campaigning against the elimination of violence against women and also been engaged in the campaign to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV-AIDS. So your family is involved in this process as well. Secondly, I want to take note of the rather spectacular role uh, that Koreans play in world affairs these days. We not only have the top political post, global post, in the hands of a Korean, but a Korean-American is involved in the top economic financial post in the world. This tells you something about the scope of Korean power these days, and I compliment <laughs> you on it. And now, let me start recon by recognizing people. And do you want to stand up here, or then let me just move to the side over there, and I'll recognize people while you respond from here. All right. Yes, sir. The first, sir. Closer. Now move around the room. Thank you very much. Raghubir Goel from India Global Asia today. Mr. Secretary General, you're doing a great job at the United Nations. I congratulate you. My question is, do you have a competition with NATO as far as United Nations is concerned? And my real question is, sir, corruption is the major issue around the globe. 
and corrupt politicians are eating national treasuries from the poor and needy people, and trillions of dollars are coming in the Swiss banks. There is no accountability, including billions from India. Indian corrupt politicians like others around the globe, how can you stop and how can you be with the people? United Nations can be a UN for the people. Thank you, sir. Good governance. Enhancing good governance is one of uh, priorities of the United Nations. Rule of law. These are foundations of uh, maintaining peace and stability, particularly political stability. When the leaders are corrupt, when there are prevalent uh, corruptive practices within a country or in the region, then these leaders just they lose their credibility and confidence and trust among people. That's what we have seen uh, around the world in many countries. People are just speaking out against the corruptive uh, leaders. But we have to admit the reality that still there are many such corruptive practices are, are being done. And therefore, I have been very straightforward, very direct against those leaders, those leaders who we believe that there is a serious good governance issues. On many occasions, I have been saying that, well, Mr. President, we are, international community is ready to provide support to you. But when this uh, bottom of this glass is uh, broken, what's the use of keep powering water? This will be just a waste, just to fix the bottom of this. Eliminate corruptive practices. Then they would always come back to me with uh, defiant uh, voices. No, you know, I am very much firm, zero tolerance, etc., etc. But what about your brothers and all these uh, families? They always uh, defend. I have been speaking very uh, vocally, directly uh, to uh, those leaders. But of course, as a matter of policy of the United Nations, as a way of uh, enhancing good governance, we will continue to fight uh, such uh, corruptive practices. There are many such crimes, organized crimes, but these again require the support and cooperation, not only within the government. We need the support from government, regional, and international uh, support. Otherwise, uh, this cannot uh, be eliminated. So I think you have made, I'm not going to talk about any uh, specific individual cases of any country, but I'm just are telling you uh, as a matter of principle in general terms. Over here. Your Excellency, you are the Secretary General. The mic is right next to you. Vishnu Poudel, National Advisory Council, South Asian Affairs. You as Secretary General, how do you navigate through the conflicting interest in your agenda of the permanent members of the Security Council? This is quite... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, uh, we learned uh, when we were students uh, studying international politics, diplomacy is uh, something like an art. <laughs> you have to 
employ all sorts of your wisdom, your skills. There is no such a fixed rule in dealing with 193 member states. They are all sovereign states. Sovereign government, sovereign present, and sover sovereignty. They have their national agenda, national interest. How to reconcile all these uh, different, different national interests into one coherent for common, common purpose? That really requires a lot of skills, a lot of patience, a lot of patience, a lot of wisdom. So as I said uh, during the last five years, I've been always trying to be a bridge builder, a harmonizer, consensus builder. That has been my, uh, one of my priorities, one of my way of doing business as a Secretary General. Of course, you mentioned this P5s, permanent five, permanent members of five. They are all uh, one of the superpowers. They have uh, very strong uh, political influence as well as what is important is a veto power by the Charter of the United Nations. Then you have to really work very closely. First of all, you have to understand what are their national interests, but how these national interests can be translated for the common good, common well-being, and common future. So I've been really trying to uh, persuade and convince each and every member state. It's not only P5s. There is the biggest, most strongest uh, power group of non-aligned group, as well as G77 and China group. They are very strong interest group of the United Nations or in any multilateral organizations. So it requires, it requires your wisdom, uh, your wisdom. I think I've been trying to uh, uh, use my wisdom or sort of some sometimes Asian value, uh, trying to understand more the concerns or interests of the other parties and putting the interest of the common international community the first. Then on the basis of that, you have to convince them. You have to have a very genuine dialogue. Sometimes uh, this dialogue can be taken in an open way or behind the scenes in a very uh, private uh, talks, uh, sitting together with the one-on-one -on -one, uh, format. This is what we call, that's a that 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 that's a French, that 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 one-on-one. This sometimes helps. This sometimes helps. Uh, because uh, the older leaders, they have their own political ego, their own prestige. When they are just uh, confronted or challenged publicly, uh, then it may be very difficult to, uh, to persuade them. So it requires all sorts of uh, diplomatic uh, skills. Thank you very much. I'm the ambassador of the League of Arab States. Uh, uh, in case of the crisis in Syria, it seems that the role of the United Nations uh, was limited, particularly in the Security Council. 
And this, uh, for one reason, is the veto of Russia and China, which really um, led to the killing of more civilians by the Syrian regimes. Now, as a result, don't you think that it's urgent or it's necessi the necessity now <coughs> of reforming the veto, the mechanism or system in the Security Council? This current situation in Syria uh, has become the hottest spot, the hottest issue, and most uh, serious and gravest concerns of international community. Uh, in that regard, uh, uh, I have been always urging the unity uh, among Security Council members uh, who, who are bearing the primary responsibility for international peace and uh, security. Now recently, the Security Council uh, members have spoken in unity uh, twice by uh, authorizing the deployment of a UN uh, supervision mission in Syria. The more than 9,000 people have been killed during the last 14 months. This is a totally unacceptable and intolerable uh, situation. The situation has reached to that. Our priority at this time is by deploying, deploying this uh, supervision mission as soon as possible. The cessation of uh, violence must stop by all the parties, either government, the military forces, or opposition forces. Uh, this should be stopped. And then political dialogue uh, must begin uh, in an inclusive way uh, for a political resolution reflecting the genuine aspiration of uh, Syrian people. That's our priority. In that uh, regard, the League of Arab States uh, have been playing a crucially important role. I have been speaking with the Secretary General uh, El Arabi of the League of Arab States many, many times, almost a daily basis, together with the Security Council. I think uh, now we are very much united, the League of Arab States, United Nations, and Security Council, myself, are trying to deploy this uh, supervision mission. As of today now, we have about uh, 60 uh, monitoring members and with about equal number of um, uh, civilian uh, staff and this will be increased by uh, more than 130 uh, by this uh, Thursday, coming Thursday this week and by the middle of this month uh, we will be able to deploy maybe 230 or more than that. Our target is to uh, deploy 300 mandated the supervision mission as soon as possible, within this month. I hope that uh, with the deployment of this supervision mission, uh, this will have, uh, first of all, a very important role uh, in monitoring and supervising the ceasefire, uh, the cessation of violence, so that the Joint Special Envoy Kofi Annan uh, can uh, help uh, begin this uh, political dialogue. At the same time, we are also trying to provide the humanitarian assistance. Uh, at least one million people in Syria uh, have been uh, displaced and affected. And tens of thousands of people have 
fled to neighboring countries, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, and Turkey. Uh, we are trying to uh, provide all humanitarian assistance, mobilizing United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee and UNICEF and UNDP and all these uh, international organizations of migrations. All humanitarian related United Nations agencies are now um, are working very hard. But we need the full solidarity among the people, among the countries of the world to uh, resolve these issues. Thank, thank you. Against the wall over there, all the way over against the wall. Yep. Your Excellency, I'm Dr. Abdurrahman Abdi. Uh, I'm one of the large Somali diaspora community here in the. I'm one of the uh, member of the large Somali diaspora community here in Washington. Uh, as you have said also in your speech, the it's important to have constituencies that are critical to participate in the forming of a new government in Somalia. The United Nations and the international community is pushing an artificial deadline in August to create a permanent government for Somalia. Somalia is not ready for that, and your secretary, uh, your special representative for Somalia, Dr. Mahiga, has made an unholy alliance with the few corrupt leaders of Somalia, and they have they have meeted together in Gorowa One and Gorowa Two, and they are trying to be now in charge of their re-election. My question, Dr. Berzinski, I'll, I'll minimize is, shouldn't the United Nations be in charge of this process of forming a government instead of the corrupt leaders who are there, who are all candidates coming back to the presidency, are in charge of the process? It's a sham, and it's going to be really a disgrace if that happens again, and these same leaders come back again. Could you please either raise your question or... Yeah, my question is... You, my question Thank is... Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I, I can understand what uh, you are trying to uh, ask or say. Uh, Somalia, unfortunately, has become one of the uh, many countries who, whose people are suffering and have been suffering at least uh, two or three decades from uh, political instability, uh, terrorism, economic difficulties, and hunger, and even piracy. I'm very concerned about the current situation in uh, Somalia. Uh, I visited Somalia for the first time in 19 years as a Secretary General of the United Nations. It was a first ever visit in two decades. I really wanted to uh, <coughs> have some solution of this issue. This country has been suffering from political instability, very serious political instability. And there is a division of the uh, countries. They have been always uh, fighting against um, uh, the rebels, and they have, been not, they have not been able to uh, eliminate this uh, piracy, piracy acts. There's a serious uh, capacity issues. They simply do not have their own capacity, uh, even though there is a government. Therefore, we are trying to address this issue from a comprehensive, a comprehensive way. First, we have to provide the political instability. 
that is what the AMISOM, this is uh, African peacekeeping missions. The Security Council has uh, increased recently, about two months ago, uh, the number of uh, these African peacekeeping missions with the support of international community. For United Nations, we have been considering deploying these peacekeeping operations, whether this peacekeeping operation has a role to play. But our view is that because of the mandate, the, there would be no peace for peacekeeping operations to keep. Still is in the middle of uh, fighting. So we will not be able to do that. That is why we, have, uh, we are helping these African uh, peacekeeping missions uh, whose mandate is uh, broader. Uh, in peace, enforcing, enforcing peace in Somalia. Uh, that is one, one encouraging aspect. There is um, a very important political uh, dialogue going on. They have been making some uh, good uh, political uh, negotiations uh, whereby by August this year, they have to have uh, a constitution that I have been urging them to have their constitution and establish their new government and address uh, the development issues. We are also trying to provide the socio-economic uh, developmental pr programs. Again, for the first time, United Nations has deployed our permanent mission there, uh, UN, uh, what is known as uh, UNPOS, a political mission in uh, Somalia. So we are trying to address all these issues, including the piracy issues. But the challenges are so great, so I cannot give you any uh, firm, definitive answer that uh, we will be able to address this issue completely in a near time soon. Thank you. This will be the last question, I'm afraid. Madam? My name is Aliza Josephson from Bootstrap Press. And first, I want to applaud your effort on peace building because that's very important. My question is about refugees. I know you, the UN is doing a, a great job about refugees, but why does the UN have two separate bodies that take care of refugees? There is the United Nations Refugee Commission and there is UNRWA. Now, one body takes care of refugees and settles them. The other, UNRWA, is a permanent institution that drains billions of dollars from the United Nations. Why not combine them? Well, madam, it's not uh, two separate uh, organizations in dealing with the refugees. When it comes to uh, refugees, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or what is known as UNHCR, that is the organization. Uh, we, there are, at this moment, 34 million refugees around the world. There are 100 million people every day United Nations has to feed breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 100 million people. That's a huge challenge. So whole humanitarian agencies are providing uh, 
food and humanitarian assistance daily. Then all these refugees, when they are uh, categorized as international refugees, then UNHCR is taking care of this. Then UNRWA, this has some specific uh, particular purpose uh, to address the issues of uh, Palestinian refugees, Palestinian refugees, and also in the near, near East there. Uh, we, he, this um, Commissioner General is now um, uh, taking care of all these uh, Palestinian the refugees uh, under this UNRWA uh, mandate. Uh, this again requires a lot of uh, support from the international community. It is a suffering uh, from lack of funding. Uh, I visited uh, Gaza myself uh, three times already, and I have seen uh, so many uh, Palestinian refugees, and I have been, uh, visited this UNRWA uh, headquarters uh, to address, to mobilize international support for these uh, refugees there. Broadly, UNHCR is now addressing these uh, refugees issues, but all refugees can return their respective homes when we have a peace building process successfully carried out, when we can ensure uh, through peacekeeping operations that there is a peace and stability in their native hometowns, then these people must be able to return to their homes. But unfortunately, because of this continuing crisis, continuing crisis, people are just fleeing from their uh, homes because they are endangered. Uh, their hum lives and human rights are being abused. So we are taking maximum and utmost care for all this. But simply uh, because of the lack of funding from international uh, communities, uh, we are not providing enough and sufficient, uh, uh, sufficient support to these people. Again, I thank you very much. Before, before I thank the Secretary General, I have an important request to make of all of you. Please remain seated until he and his party have had the opportunity to leave the room. Otherwise, it would be very awkward. So please remain seated. <laughs> then I'm sure I speak for all of you that we are grateful to you, not only for your very important statement, but for something else. Your very warm engaging personality, which you conveyed so effectively. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.